0: This will be episode number 12. Hi, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the localization podcast. I'm back uh, with another week's episode. (laughs) Um, There's some baby screaming in the background. Um, So what did I want to say? See, I just started but I immediately lost my thought. So yeah, so this is the localization podcast. This will be episode number 12. My name is Andre Zito. If you are listening this on your favorite audio platform. Hello, I would just like to remind you that I also do a recording of myself on a camera. And I post this content on my YouTube channel. By the way, uh, my YouTube channel has just recently, I think two days ago, surpassed 50 hours of total watch time. So I'm very happy about it. Most of the time actually comes from one video, you know, the part of part part rule or part rule, uh, the 80-20 rule, where let's say 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your projects or from your customers. So in my case, I think it's almost half or more than half of the watch time is from the first educational video that I made that was about toggle and how to track your time. And why I think it's important to track every minute of your life, especially if you have goals in your life and you want to and you still feel that you don't have enough time because I think that like most of us actually have time, but we are not putting the time towards what really matters to us. So that was just a little bit of promotion. Second thing that I want to announce is, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, that we are going to surpass, which is another small milestone for me as a content creator, and that is related to this podcast, the one that you're just listening, and we have already more than 100 total plays. It's spread across 11 episodes, so I don't think it's like that much. But it was funny because last week I actually received two random positive feedbacks about uh, the podcast that people were listening, and they were either enjoying it, they had fun with it, or they actually got some value out of it. So um, really, thank you for that. I really it kind of like boosts my motivation a little bit when I get these feedbacks, I would also I would also wouldn't mind getting a negative feedback, I think because I need to get more used to reacting to negative stuff. Uh, so again, this is something that I've been recently hearing from Gary V. For those of you that are listening frequently, you know that he's like the main guy that I watch on YouTube and I consume his content most of the time. It's It's his content. And so he always says that the reason why he's so resistant to negative comments is that he also doesn't get too high on positive comments. So I think that's also one of my issues in life and in career is that I sometimes like focus too much like on the wins and the successes uh, and the accomplishments that I did in life. Instead of just, you know, focusing on the next task, I, I sometimes like, I like to, is it dwell, dwelling on the past? I use this word a lot when I did the, the power of now book review. Um, so I kind of like live from the past successes sometimes. Like I like to like remember them. And I think that maybe because of that, that I really, really like to be in that position, like when I'm like celebrated or, (sighs) uh <sighs> it. Yeah, let's stick to that. Uh, that. That's also the reason why I also don't deal with negative feedback that much. So I think I should need uh, to get some practice. Um, what else is there to say? So the last one, the last episode, as I mentioned, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the podcast, but I definitely said it on LinkedIn that I think it was probably the weakest episode that I ever did because I was just pretty much reading the stuff and I didn't have much to say about it. Um, So this episode, this one will be, I think, very, very good. There's like a lot of content, a lot of really a lot of content. And so I did my usual Oh, actually, (laughs) now that I think about it, I haven't even checked Slater yet. So I I was doing um, I was browsing through Twitter, I usually start with Twitter with the localization hashtag. And I found so many good articles that I didn't even go to LinkedIn today. So today I was finishing the the preparation, I went through the final posts on Twitter. And because I already picked so many articles, I didn't really go into LinkedIn. And as I mentioned earlier, I even forgot to look at Slater. I think there was something else that I wanted to mention when it comes to the content. yeah. so this one, I think this episode will be kind of like the earlier episodes that I did, like, we will be covering covering a lot of articles. And they're really, really interesting for me. Is there something else that I wanted to do? Yeah. Um, so I don't know why. But when I was preparing just a few minutes before I hit the record button. And that's another thing that I need to mention as well is that when I was doing preparation previously for the previous episodes, I used to either copy the the whole article in, into one note, and then I just removed the paragraphs, which I thought were not interesting, or I just wanted to, you know, shorten the, the article, or I just straight read everything from the website, or I used to take some some bullet points previously when I was doing uh, the preparation and I would just kind of like try to like narrate the article in my own words completely. So what I did this time was that I I downloaded like a Chrome plugin which is used to highlight text on websites. So now I don't have to copy it into note uh, into OneNote and I can just Straight highlight it on the website directly as I'm reading the the text, and if I find something interesting, I just highlight it, and it's there. So for those of you who are listening, well, for those of you who are watching the video, hello, yes. So you will see this very soon. For those of you who are listening, don't bother at all. You just get the the important content. Another thing that I wanted to mention is my current state. Um, So I think two days ago, I was kind of feeling sore throat a little bit. I was also a bit lazy, because it was I was back from my official vacation, two weeks. So I had to start working on my regular duties for global me. And the integration was very, very slow, I was really struggling. So I had to catch up even yesterday on Saturday, I was doing some work finishing some wrap up. And so then after I finished, I was like, I have like only one week left here in Manila. So I wanted to go out. So I went out, I was drinking and I came back home at 4am. And I think I woke up like maybe 630 or seven. And then I couldn't fall asleep again, because I was just like chatting and I was just, you know, doing the, the dating scene. <laughs> that's very rich here in the Philippines. Um, so yeah, I didn't sleep much at all. I don't feel actually tipsy at all. So I lack sleep. But the good thing is that after I finally get up, after, I think I was like on mobile phone from like 7 until maybe 11. So then I finally did like some light breakfast. Breakfast I took like with some medicine. Uh, because I still feel that I'm not 100% fit. And then I just went straight into the podcast preparation. And after I finished, I just brushed my teeth. And I set up everything and I just started recording. So I'm very happy that the usual thing that I think I mentioned a couple of times is, you know, like I try to delay when I press the record button because I feel I'm like I'm not like not fully prepared and stuff like that. So this time it didn't happen. And I think it should be like this with everything, you know, you just go and do stuff and then you I don't know, adjust or just except the way it is. Uh, so that's that thing. Another thing that I wanted to mention, I want to give a shout out shout out to Mr. Bruno Herman. I found this guy on Twitter. And so every time I search for hashtag localization posts on Twitter, he comes out pretty often. And for this episode, I think actually I have actually two posts that he retweeted and one of his original content article, which is super useful, and I will talk about it later. Uh, so his handle on Twitter is B Hermann. That's B H E R R M A N N underscore I N T L. So it's not very easy. But for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see it right here. His name is Bruno Hermann, That's double r and double n. And his quick introduction on Twitter is hashtag digital globalization. Digital is global by nature, not by default. No great local experience without global excellence. My job goal and passion. My views. So I don't know what he actually does let me check his LinkedIn if he's like has his own company or what probably I would assume so opening 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 LinkedIn so yeah so he's in Belgium. he actually have eleven mutual connections. I'm just going to connect with him right now and... Where oh, oh, I see. Okay. So he is not actually like a CEO, of like some LSP or something. He actually works in e-content magazine. Oh, okay, that makes sense because that's where his article was published. And and I actually didn't like the font. <laughs> like the content is great. I didn't like I think like the 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 overall style of the uh, of the website of this e content magazine could be better. And also his like the way he outlined his for suggestions or for actions that we should be taking to kind of like empower globalization more uh could be like you know like structured like you know like one, two, three, four or something like that. So it was just like pure paragraphs for those of you who are uh, watching on YouTube, you will see this later. So okay, so he's basically a writer. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I also need to give him send him a message on Twitter. That I really like his tweets. So if you are interested, I would suggest you just go find him on Twitter. Again, it's Bruno Herman double R double N. H E R R M A N N Find him there. He has eighteen hundred followers. That's quite a lot. And he really shares a lot of good posts which are kinda like on the uh which are kinda like what is the word for this? Like which are blah 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 um which are on the verge. Is it on the verge? <laughs> Uh, which are basically like a mix of localization and um, digital content or marketing. So I think it's pretty useful for us localization people. Okay, but anyway, with that being said, I think that's all I had for the intro. And we're already 15 minutes in. So yeah, I'm doing my usual long intros. Oh, So yeah, I have Okay, let me I have one, two, three, four, five, six, I have six articles. All of them I think are very, very good. I think actually, if I find the time, I think I should actually create like a separate trailers or at least like images for each topic because it's super, super good. So and as you know, usually like once we hit like 45 minutes or 50 minutes, like my voice starts to um, go away, my throat gets itchy. So that's not even good now, because my throat is not 100% well. Anyway, so I have a lot of water prepared here. So I'll be drinking throughout. And with that all being said, please, let's just get into it. I'm trying to figure out like which uh, thing I should put as first. But there are so many things here. I don't think it actually matters. So let's just start with the first one that I have. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe I should try to speak with my more uh, sensual voice. Yeah. Okay. So here we are. So this is a, an article uh, that's published on MarketWatch.com, and it's entitled "The New Technology That Could Turn Small Businesses Into International Companies." And this article is purely about machine translation. As I was reading it, I think this is kind of like basic introduction and overview of what the machine translation brings to the table, how some of the big players are using it, how it is changing our world. So don't expect a lot of uh, details about machine translation. But I think this is really just a good perspective from kind of like the, the end users, or maybe like even like how people outside localization view the translation technology and especially machine translation. So here we go. Language barriers can hinder international commerce. But the problem is increasingly being solved by machine based translation programs, which are becoming sophisticated enough to enable people in different countries to communicate as if they spoke the same language. Lily Chen, a sales manager with electronic forklift company Taishink, Jihuan (laughs) hydraulic machinery in China, said she's used Alibaba Group holdings, built in translation tools to communicate with buyers in Europe and the US. In an interview with Market Watch using the technology, she explained that her English was not very good when she became as a salesperson. And the translation software first helped her conduct professional communications with the customer in Germany, and later with other buyers. Quote, I was a little nervous at first. But from the customer's reply, the customer fully understood the meaning of the translation, which made me feel very confident. Chen said. She deemed the software able to handle the professional vocabulary of electric forklifts, including fork width, loading capacity, and after sale service. So this is kind of interesting. I don't know, like if if the translation tools that Alibaba has are kind of like available to public, kind of like um, the Microsoft's MT or Google's MT. Or if it's just like available only within their platforms, and I think it's mentioned below in the article, and I'll say this later uh, that they uh, that it's within their platforms. I'm not sure if it's available outside their platforms. But the thing that is surprising is that it really understood like this kind of like how would we call this like heavy machinery terminology or having like this, like very industry specific uh, words, and people could actually understand it. They could understand the machine translated output. And it could even lead to to sales in in Europe and US from a Chinese person who has no who has not a very good English. So I don't know how they did it uh but yeah I'm wondering like if the other tools would also be able to deliver the machine translation on such a level anyway let's continue um so the next chapter or something the next section is about e-commerce's international expansion and we're still on the same article about machine translation by the way One big opportunity exists in e-commerce where the giants of online shopping are already beginning to incorporate translation technology into their businesses. And Here we have an example of eBay. And they're using machine translation. Not surprisingly, the result is a system that enables shoppers to make search queries in their preferred language and receive translated product listings while also taking into account context of a customer's request. Machine translation has to be smart enough to adjust its behavior based on whether someone is looking for a Galaxy Note 10 smartphone, or a galaxy print sweatshirt. For example, since the branded product doesn't need to be rendered into a different language. eBay's push for machine translation has helped the company increase Latin American exports by nearly 20% it is funny that they mentioned that um, the branded product doesn't need to be kind of like translated into different language. Because um, when I was talking to to Adam, 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 (laughs) Adam, uh, from model front, he was actually the first person who kind of like reached out to me based on what I was doing on social media. And so we were discussing machine translation and he pointed in one of his presentations, like maybe the presentation is not valid anymore. Um, one of the presentations like when it comes to benefits of model front, uh they were pointing to not eBay, but I think it was Amazon, where the machine translation used by Amazon, uh, translated the product name. So I'm wondering if and the machine translation used by eBay. And in this example, if it's if it's I'm wondering if if the product name so Galaxy Note 10 would be left in English because it's a widely known term or if the engine is simply smart that they could somehow detect what is a product name. Anyway, that's, that's the only thought that came to my mind. Okay, let's continue. Machine translation versus a human translation. In order to be accessible in the places where 90% of the world's online spending happens, businesses must offer support on their sites for the 15 most economically beneficial languages, according to Donald De Palma from CSA research. Just four years ago, they would have only needed to feature 11 languages to reach even more spenders. 99% of the online marketplace today requires support for 56 languages. So that was a little peek uh, into reach. And I think when I was reading this to me, it was like Okay like let's say you can reach 99% of the online marketplace and I think I was trying to make a point that maybe like going really wide and like we're really trying to capturing like like they say like 99% of the online marketplace <coughs> which you can do if you support 56 languages which is quite a lot um maybe this wide reach is really needed only for like the big giants like Amazon, eBay. I don't even know like if they have that many languages. But like if you are like a small e-commerce site. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I wanted to say. If you're like a small e-commerce site and you have like a very targeted product, maybe you don't need to look at like I won't reach ninety percent of the world's online marketplace or even 99% 99% percent 99% percent of the total market because maybe some countries don't need your product or service or maybe don't even they don't even have the buying power for that. Uh, So while these numbers look nice, like, okay, if you translate your site into 15 languages, you could potentially reach 90% of the world. But the question is whether you need to reach 90% of the world. Okay, let's continue. So here it is about so so far we talked about eBay and the big giants. And here is the next section which is about <coughs> which is about uh, small businesses. So, cornerstone of Alibaba's commercial platform is a real-time translation tool that lets small businesses communicate with suppliers overseas. Some hundred thousand buyers exchange a total of two billion translated text messages every week on the Alibaba.com global trade platform, and the company plans to introduce live video chat translations later this year. That's pretty crazy. The idea behind Alibaba's offering is that small businesses hesitate to look globally for suppliers because of language barriers, but may be open to international commerce, 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 (laughs) if they could effectively communicate. Translation technology lets companies operate like multinational companies, but do so from wherever it is they do business said John Kaplan, Alibaba's head of North American B2B operations. By embedding translation tools, you're fostering the most critical thing in a trade, which is trust. Because if you can understand the person you're doing business with and communicate clearly, you both can make informed decisions. As I was saying earlier, I think it looks like they're uh, they're translation tool is only available within Alibaba's commercial platform. I have no idea how it looks like. Uh, And I didn't know that actually uh, the retailers in China use it, use that platform to communicate with suppliers overseas. So it looks like the platform is not only for selling to the customers. But it's also maybe to cover the whole supply chain. I have no idea. And what else? Let's continue. Uh, so, that was about e commerce. Next, we talk about some other areas of uh, the application of machine translation. This one is about Microsoft. So, Microsoft is also building Translator, that's a product into its core offerings such that speakers can give a PowerPoint presentation at the conference and allow la- allow those in the room who speak other languages to follow along with written translations on their own devices. The technology opens up the content of a presentation to people who ordinarily wouldn't have been able to understand it. Airbnb automatically translates communications between guests and hosts. Prior to arrival, so recent college graduate Julia Pena was surprised to get to her rental outside Los Angeles only to discover that her host didn't speak any English. While Julia was there, however, the host made use of a conversation function on Google Translate to ask Pena about her day and even offered to make her breakfast before a big job interview. So, Google Translate we know all pretty well. That's one of our biggest enemies (laughs) that we try to fight when our customers think that using Google Translate is the right thing, because it doesn't cost much money. Um, And Airbnb, I think I was mentioning this in some of the earlier episodes. And we will also have a separate article for Airbnb, which is very good. Okay, let's continue. In general, online habits tend to lead offline habits, according to bring you Sun. So the future of machine translation promises more physical world applications for the technology. <clears throat> Microsoft menaces as a person Believes machine translation is near a point where it will be indistinguishable from human translation. He said the company's research product, a more academic version of its translation system is already at parity with output from human translators. Microsoft is working to scale that research technology so that it's suitable for consumer and business use cases. <clears throat> so this is something very interesting, because I think it was the, the first episode, or maybe the second one where I think it was from the fire of Tratos who was saying that NMT is coming and it will be soon on par with <clears throat> the quality of human translators then i think i was reading like a lot of articles which were saying quite the opposite that like nmt is still far away from reaching that quality and now here we have someone from microsoft claiming that they already have some academic version of a translation system that is already at parity with the output from human translators uh, so we'll see. I guess it's not a happy news for our dear translator friends. And that's the article. That's the end of the first article. We I'm very happy. We covered the first article. Moving on to the second article. When my Chrome computer allows it. This one is about KonMari media why localization is important for new markets. This is a lady which is called Marie Kondo. I think I heard her name a few times. I think I heard it in, on Tim Ferriss's show. That's the name of his podcast. Maybe she was even a guest there. I don't know. But I didn't know what she does. And this is a g- very, very good article about which I think I call this like next level of localization where it is really just like adjusting how your product is made, or like, what are the ingredients? Like, what is the package? It's really not just like, you know, the typical localization that we say, which is like, I don't know, translation, and we're adapting it to local, but we don't usually tinker with the with the actual product. And this is actually about localizing. uh, Personality or a character. So, this is super, super interesting. So, I'm very happy to be sharing this with you, even though I don't know anything about this lady. But it actually kind of interests me. I had Netflix at my previous Airbnb here in the Philippines. Uh, right now, I live in a much more simple place <clears throat> with no Netflix. But I guess I could find it somewhere on internet. Well, I could stream it on. internet. Anyway, Marie Kondo, for those of you that know, know don't know, just like me, is a Japanese tidying expert, best selling author, the star of her own Netflix show, and the founder of KonMari Media Incorporated. She is best known as the mother of the KonMari method a process to simplify and organize your life. By getting rid of physical objects that no longer spark joy, I guess I should definitely watch that because you know i'm I'm that person who well, not fully, but I used to always like keep the things that I gathered you know like over the years, and then when I actually started moving around the world, I had to like get rid of them. Uh, but whenever I move to like a new place and I stay there for a while, you know I buy new things, and then when I have to throw them out, I feel kinda of, like emotionally attached to it and I think, yeah, this is something that was discussed on Tim Ferris' uh podcast that like some people like tr- like periodically try to they try to clean up the stuff like get rid of the stuff that they don't need or that they don't have. Fun with, or that doesn't bring them joy, just like the article says. I think, yeah, it must have been her, probably. Yeah, and I think I should be doing doing that in my own life, especially like with all the clothes. Sometimes I buy clothes and I don't wear them more than once or twice. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, how did the Japanese tidying expert successfully build her brand in America? For one the KonMari method solved real problems. However, we also take note of the various localization marketing methods she implemented as part of her business strategy. So although Kondo introduced the KonMari method in her book, the life changing magic of tidying up the Japanese art of the cluttering and organizing to the English speaking audience in 2014. She did not become popular until her show tidying up with Marie Kondo was released on Netflix in January 2019. So and here are some localization strategy examples of KonMari for the American market. Please listen carefully. (laughs) Number one, changing the marketing message to cater to American needs. Understanding why users need your product or service is crucial to how you approach potential users. We can see this in the way the, mar- uh, the sorry, we can see this in the way the KonMari method is advertised in Japan and America. Generally, the KonMari method helps users in America and Japan the same way. Users are encouraged to only keep the things that spark joy and are taught how to organize the things kept in a way that saves space efficiently. The KonMari method is perfect for Japanese users who live in small houses and struggle with a limited amount of space. However, an issue as simple as not having enough space is not necessarily a problem in America. So instead of org, uh, sorry, instead of advert- advertising advertising the KonMari method for small spaces in American homes. KonMari is advertised as decluttering and organizing an overflowing amount of objects in a person's home or for adopting a more minimalist lifestyle. By changing her marketing message, she is able to sell the same service to a different audience based on audiences lifestyle, needs and problems. Yep. This is this is this is a great example of how would I even call this transcreation? This is not transcreation. Well, technically, maybe. But this is really like the next level. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say because you know, this is like very, very smart. So I'll just shut up and go to the next point. Number two appealing to the American audience by embracing Japanese culture. Kondo embraces Japanese culture when localizing her brand for the American market. In Japan, Kondo does not need to put an emphasis on Japanese culture. However, for those who aren't familiar with Japanese culture, the Japanese customs found in the KonMari method may be interesting because it is foreign and new to them. On Kondo's Netflix show, she puts a strong emphasis on the philosophy of Zen which means meditation in Japanese and is also known to be a state of calm attentiveness guided by meditation. Zen Buddhism practical practices practices are actually seen as unique points of the KonMari method. This aspect is not strongly emphasized in KonMari media in Japan, probably because they're familiar with it and it's not so foreign and exotic and interesting for them as it is for American people. <clears throat> as you can see below the covers of Marikon's book look very different depending on where you buy the book. So if you're listening, unfortunately, uh, well, what I can do for you is just continue reading. And I think it describes. So the left is the Japanese version of the book, as you can see the cover shows a witch on a broom, which in Japan is associated with cleaning along with sharing a great deal of information at the bottom of the book. Yeah, so the cover for those of you who are listening, it really looks Asian, there's like really a lot of text. I think the first time when I saw something like this was like, when my friend was trying to set up some some website to sell call again or something like that. She was just experimenting with it in Thailand. And when I look at her website, I was like, Oh, my gosh!" like, what is this fucking crap? You know, like, everything was flashing. It's really looks like the website like from early 90s. And she actually told me that that's the style of Thai websites, you know, so now that I'm looking at this book cover, I can actually <clears throat> kind of see that my friend was actually right, that not everybody probably likes the the clean style of the websites that we have with all the Silicon Valley startups. And so that was the Japanese version with the witch. And on the right side is the English version of the book. One of the first things we notice is that the cover of the American book doesn't have a witch on it. In America, which is tend to be tied to negative thoughts, ideas and customs. Another thing we notice is the colors of the book. The colors are very light, calming, clear and fresh, kind of like how a person would feel after cleaning and organizing a room. So yeah, when I look at the right side, which is the US cover, it's really much simpler. It looks clean. And yeah, and it says that it's an international bestseller. I definitely like the US version more. The book is actually published in over 40 countries, but each of the books has a different cover design. Showing that Mari Kondo and her team understand the need to create messaging and images that will resonate with the target audience. <laughs> so if they really have a different cover forty different covers for each country that's really, really amazing, and again, like the same question comes to my mind like when I was doing I think two episodes ago when we were talking about like how the retailers like localize their stores, how they organize it, what kind of product they sell. I'm really like wondering like if like who actually comes up with these solutions. like Is it like the typical LSP or is it like the publisher or is it like a collaboration between LSP and or maybe it's like a digital or marketing agency in every target country. And my ideal like goal would be like should LSP be able to deliver such a solution? I think definitely yes. But are we doing it? Are most of the LSPs doing it? I don't think so. I would like to be wrong. Hmm. Where are we? Calm the localizer brand for the American audience by emphasizing Japanese elements such as Zen and calming imagery into her branding, which is something she does not do for her Japanese audience. In this way, she shows that she understands her American audience, which makes her brand more relatable and appealing. Number three, blending American and Japanese styles in the brand. This is about her Kondo's physical appearance in how she dresses and carries herself has played a key part in her branding. By keeping it consistent and clean many are able to identify her quickly. Let's take a closer look at the character she has created for her brand. We'll start with her physical appearance. Kondo's appearance always looks very clean and put together. One of the ways she achieves this look is by including something white into her appearance, which is associated with purity and cleanliness in both American and Japanese cultures. For example, Kondo always wears at least one white piece of clothing. She even told the New Yorker that she does it because it's part of her brand. When she was in Japan, before becoming famous in America, she would wear black clothing from time to time. But since she became popular in America, we noticed that she stopped wearing black clothing. We also noticed that there is more focus on her teeth, which are very straight and white something more common in America than in Japan. Another thing we notice is that she is always wearing a skirt. She keeps a very consistent figure in this way. Even though wearing skirts is common in both America and Japan, it seems that her clothing style leans more towards Japanese fashion. As for her hair, she purposely maintains long black hair and bangs instead of coloring or highlighting her hair, like many Asian Americans, to make herself look more distinguishable. This is also a stereotypical hairstyle for Japanese women. In some cases, uh, there are people shouting in the background. I'm not sure if audacity is picking up looks like audacity is fine. So hopefully you didn't hear much. Uh, this is also a stereotypical hairstyle for Japanese women. In some cases, when a person sees black hair, bangs and white clothing, they may associate a topic or image as something to do with Mari Kondo. An interesting thing that we notice is Kondo's makeup, which emphasizes her character and Asian like beauty. Prior to her fame in America, Kondo did not wear much makeup. However, we noticed that she wore (coughs) false eyelashes and eyeliner for her Netflix show, which is a more common look in America. Watching the show, we assume that adding makeup to her eyes helps her look more confident and mature. Looking at the image below, we see Kondo when she was a consultant in Japan and Kondo in one of the episodes of her show. In the picture on the left, She isn't wearing much makeup and looks very young. While on the right, she looks more mature. Perhaps the makeup helps her look more serious, authoritative and mature. So I'm looking at the pictures right now. And I'm not sure if it's like totally related to like her being in Japan versus being in America. Because like the picture on the left definitely looks she's way younger. And, like, even the article says that that was, like, when she was, like, a consultant, which was, like, way back before, you know. And it's, like, I don't think it's, like, that odd that, like, young women don't use wake makeup. And maybe, like, once they get older and want to have more professional look, they start wearing makeup. But, yeah, she definitely looks much better on the right picture, which is kind of like the U.S. version of her. All in all, we think that her style has a good balance of both American and Japanese styles. Furthermore, when looking at the character she portrays in the media, Kondo is seen to have both cute and goofy behavior. These characteristics resemble that of a cute and animated cartoon character. With this character, Kondo seems less intimidating and more fun and loving, which makes it easier for others to approach the daunting task of organizing their life. So we're getting to the end. This is like the final summary. Key takeaways. The first is her marketing message. Kondo shows that she understands the different needs of both her Japanese and American users. The second is in her products and services. We notice that Kondo fully embraces parts of Japanese culture. To make herself unique while still appealing to a foreign audience. Third is in her character. She creates a character that blends both her Japanese style and aspects that resemble more American features. By keeping this character consistent and clean, she strengthens her brand image. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's the article number two, and we are nearing one hour. And let's get into article number four, number three. So number three is from Mister Bruno Hermann, uh, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. So this is his original article that was published on e-contact, econtentmag.com. <clears throat> on September 18 2019. And he basically talks about elevating and promoting globalization within corporations and how we should try to move it from from the image of being just like uh a cost driven center, like you have to pay for it. But people don't see the returns on localization, or they don't associate it directly uh, with what we typically do. Um, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to it. And then I'll probably say a few things. So he talks about he establishes this this term globalizers which are basically people who put a mindset of globality globality in daily practice in his experience globalizers are people sharing an interest a stake or an objective in terms of global reach Local resonance and personal satisfaction when it comes to delighting local customers. I think I would consider myself a globalizer. Okay, although globalizers play a critical role in the digital age, a number of them feel tolerated, rather celebrated, or sometimes invisible in some parts of a global organization. Elevating globalization in the broadest sense of the world, from being challenged as a cost driver to being recognized as a profit driver, takes a lot of effort and time. Here are a few elevators and actions, widen your world and move away from what you consider as your area of expertise to embrace different aspects of global content and product leadership. On the one hand, it helps you grasp the big picture. Totally. If you're an engineer or a linguist who clearly sees how his or her contribution plays out in product life cycles, and customer journeys journeys, you can not only enhance your current practices, if needed, but also enrich enrich your knowledge, competencies and skills. This may be very useful when you have to negotiate trade offs, do more work with less bandwidth, or do less work with more value. So this is uh, a great point. This kind of like a theory that maybe once I'll make a video about it and then I'll make a series of where I just um, try to further explain my ideas, most of them which actually come from these podcasts. And the idea is really to have a distance from what you do. So that you don't just focus like on your day to day works. Like for example, like if you're a translator, if you're an engineer, if you're a project manager, if you just focus on like your things, your day to day job, you're missing kind of like the big picture you, you and you need to see how your work connects to, to everything. Like you really need to think about localization as part of the whole process of creating a value for the end users of your customers if you are LSB and where am i going with this yeah because i and also like you need to get distance from time to time and by distance i mean so for example like if you're a project manager and you always work on the same project because like you're part of a certain program and you have like great relationship with a customer So things are working smoothly. So of course, nobody wants to like change anything. But I think that because like things are working, that's actually like a like a big trap, or like a risky thing. Because like if things are working, people usually don't have incentive to to change things. And for example, if you are working on program A, and then suddenly you're switched into program B you could learn something from them or you could see the things that they don't see as an issue because they're doing it every day and it's simply working. So that kind of ties to the big picture. I think having a bit of distance of what you do on a day to day basis, uh, I think helps you uh, get that big picture. I hope I'm recording. Yeah, we are. Okay, let's go to the next part from the article engage to increase your visibility. For example, user experience researchers and architects might not see the added value of collaborating closely with localization leads or translators, especially if they sit. Oh, there's a dog. Okay, the dog is gone. <laughs> especially if they sit in Organizationally and geographically dispersed teams. Fostering mutual support and increasing complementary strengths create more efficient synergies aiming at delighting customers with linguistically, culturally, and functionally relevant products. Global business is like a puzzle that requires a number of people to have the right pieces at the right time interacting with stakeholders beyond your team is paramount to collaborate at scale and to shape project teams moving and delivering in an agile fashion. So This is a gr- Another great uh, tip. My take here is, well, first thing that I want to mention, like when I was still working on the LSP side when I was with alpha, and our client was autodesk. I was always trying trying to kind of like create like this mindset that I don't do my work for the customers who are basically like localization, people or localization program managers, in, in my case, at at your client at Autodesk, but we are working together with them to satisfy the, the end user. <coughs> and the second thing that comes to my mind, uh, which is more, I think relevant to what Bruno mentioned here in this paragraph is I know that I was talking a lot about marketing, experimenting and like trying to do a B testing, seeing which translation actually works based on the based on the feedback from the market or the conversions, instead of just judging the quality based on a few people's opinions. But yeah, I definitely feel like we should always try to move from being just like a team that just gets requests, and then it's like a black box for the customers, then we just deliver the files, and then it's case closed. And I don't think like having like regular, like, I don't know, stupid meetings, like weekly sync ups, like, hey, this is the status that is what I'm doing. I don't think that's where you want to go. That's like the traditional, like reporting. You really want to collaborate more, which I think is what Bruno is also saying. Okay, moving on. Evangelize. I don't know how to read this evangelize to your organization about globalization standards, best practices and imperatives to fertilize the understanding of localization pain and gain with frequent communications, presentations and invitations. In addition to scheduled project meetings and business reviews, you should plan training sessions to explain what you and your team do in plain language and highlight your contribution to global and local growth. Share operational metrics that cover the amount of work that has been done together with time and cost effectiveness indicators link these metrics to financial and experience driven metrics that reflect the actual impression, impact and imprint on the customer side. For example, if you have localized an application for 25 markets in six weeks, you should consider accessibility, memorability and simplicity analytics to highlight correlations, combining both categories of data in a dashboard is best to visualize value quickly and tangibly. Uh, so yeah, evangelizing, which to me is basically educating your customers within the organization about localization. And what are the benefits and maybe like sharing the metrics and stuff like that. And we should be like sharing news, like what we're working on uh like sharing the successes and stuff like that. I don't think that many companies are doing that. I'm trying to think of like when I was at Autodesk, like if Autodesk was having like some global messaging tower, it's like all the localization customers inside Autodesk, I think not. And like, for example, like what I'm doing right now, fuck, I'm running out of battery. Like what I'm I'm doing right now, like like a podcast, or just like recorded video or like, I don't know, bi weekly or monthly just sit down with like the important people from the localization department and you just basically discuss you have a discussion about like what's going on and stuff like that. It brings personality to your customers. And it's a scalable way to reach all of them. So let's try to finish this. Your coworkers and business partners are also likely to appreciate informal meetings where they can discuss, learn and take away information at their pace. Such meetings usually help bring up comments, questions, and requests that may remain, remain unspoken or overlooked. Otherwise, I definitely agree. I think like everybody should just get drunk. And that's where things come to the surface. You can even take a gamification approach via lunch and learn events. I don't have a good experience with these or company breakfasts so that people can feel more involved. Why not highlight what would happen if proper internationalization and localization are not managed effectively. Why not organize a stump the expert quiz where people would have to ask and answer questions about linguistic cultural or functional factors driving customer experience around the world around the world as creativity is intelligence having fun. Some people may become globalizers while having fun. Uh, So what What this part uh, leads me to is the idea of really having like people from localization work really closely, ideally, like within the same office with their customers, like whether they're doing an app, doing software, writing documentation, doing marketing, I think it should be really beneficial. It doesn't have to be like 24 seven. And the final thing here is develop personal competencies that support your know how and demonstrate your know how to be network internally and externally to discover or dive into why others say what they say and do what they do, no matter if you share some common ground with them or not. Soft skills are as important as other skills when it comes to collaborating, communicating and executing for the sake of international audiences. Your knowledge is most valuable when it is explained, understood and potentially transferred with a great deal of emotional intelligence. Keep in mind that you are talking to human beings most of the time who feel what you do as much as they see it. A global designer who can describe his thinking and point out how it relates to values such as empathy or trust can amplify the impact of his words and visuals. And he or she can also translate tough concepts into simple ideas. Uh, So any thoughts about this thing? Um, Networking? Yeah, I think this is more about like, what I was saying before, like getting the distance and really like looking around like how other people do things, and trying to understand why they do them certain way. And I think like doing like this podcast like really helps me <clears throat> do that. And I also try to reach to people like on social media, I'm talking to more people than I have ever before doing my whole career like strangers, you know, I just message them like, Hey, you want to talk about localization and stuff like that. So I think, and this is kind of like my selfish takeaway from this, I think like I'm <clears throat> trying to network a little bit. It's a huge problem for me because. I thought that networking was just for salespeople. Anyway, this was the article. It's a really good write up. It could use like some better formatting, maybe visuals, but like the content is really great and I'm running out of voice again, so I'll need to drink. That was article number three. And moving on to article number four. I'm actually very happy about this one. So as the L, they have finally released language cloud, <coughs> which I think I mentioned in the very first episode, when I read their <coughs> press release, when I read their press release uh, on Slater. Uh, so now it's out. I think I should maybe give it like a test run. I don't know if I can actually do it. I don't know if I if I let's say that I record myself trying out SDL Language Cloud for the first time without their approval. Can I do that? Maybe I should just let them know someone. Um, did I do that? I really want to do it uh and actually i have a plan to kind of like cover most of the tools that are on the market maybe even with my colleagues with my engineering colleagues <laughs> anyway let's get to it so this is an article this is a blog article from sdl which basically announces that sdl language cloud is now available so let's see what it does First previewed in June 2019, to great anticipation from the language industry, we're pleased to announce the general release of our innovative SDL Language Cloud solution this week. Designed to accelerate and automate translation for all content types, languages, and translation methods, SDL Language Cloud is an end to end intelligent Translation solution powered by HI, SDL Linguistic AI Technology. By listening for many years to our customers, we build a solution that considers their struggles with translation technology and solves their challenges. Blah, blah, blah. SDL Language Cloud is the first cloud based solution. Enabling companies to benefit from both machine intelligence and human expertise, optimizing the translation process for greater control, visibility, and scalability across the global content supply chain. By unifying SDL's extensive language services, robust translation management capabilities, and cutting edge neural machine translation, SDL Language Cloud automates all parts of the translation supply chain. Integration with the industry's most popular cat tool, SDL Trotter Studio, further improves productivity and quality for anyone needing to localize content. Enterprises, language service providers, and translators. (laughs) Regardless of file format, languages required or due date SDL language cloud makes it easy for users to create new projects, add content, select the best translation resources and leverage previous efforts while managing any number of existing projects. So here, for those of you who are listening, here is an image that looks like a Kanban board. So I can see they have a translation column, they have a linguistic review, they have a customer review, and then they have Finalization. So I really, really like this. I definitely approve of Canon boards. I think Canon boards are just great. Okay, let's continue. Linguists have access to robust review and editing options, as well as direct integration with their preferred productivity tools. Role based dashboards. Help team members focus on their most important tasks and improve output. Additionally, SDL Language Cloud surely, uh, sorry, securely connects with existing content repositories across the entire process. So the next screenshot for all of you, my lovely listeners, there is a dashboard. And dashboard, the main dashboard here looks kind of like I don't know how this type of chart is called. It's kind of like a box, big, uh, like a big rectangle that's like split into smaller rectangles. And I don't know what it what each actually represents. I think it's probably like each box within that big rectangle is probably a project. Because yeah, we see it right here below. So it's a project. And maybe the size of the square or maybe the size of each box of or sorry maybe the size of each project uh determines the work count or maybe the cost and then there's also it's either green or it's either red so maybe the red ones are the ones that are overdue i would assume so it's kind of like looking like it's like your portfolio of projects i would say I'm not sure if this is the best representation because I don't know what it actually means. It kind of like combines like two metrics of the volume or the cost and if it's on track or if it's overdue. I don't know. Anyway, here are the features and capabilities. Here's the whole list. So complete content integration supports all file types with direct integration to over 100 content systems. That's fucking a lot. Business applications and file sharing tools to eliminate manual import and export tasks. That's just great on its own. Easy project creation with simple project forms, instant quotes and pre configured workflows. Projects are created quickly and launch earlier. intelligent translation management high analyzes content and extracts important information to help users determine the best linguistic assets to leverage from translation memories, terminology glossaries and NMT models, smart dashboards and notifications, modern user interfaces provide project status, visibility, escalations and overall cost. Mm, That's not so Amazing. Uh, embedded language services. Our in house linguists and independent translators are easily accessible for direct linguistic support. But what if you're like LSP with your own team? Would that still be available? I don't know. Sophisticated NMT. Instant translation automates much of the work, allowing translators to focus on editing content that requires more nuance. Built in translator productivity with 100% sdl sdl tradus studio compatibility translators can use the working environment they already know and prefer enterprise scalability performance to support any volume of content enterprise grade security provides security and data protection standards for complete peace of mind okay here's the final part organizations today must continuously translate all content to all markets to meet global customer demands. As the language cloud is a must have must have solution for any company wanting to transform their content supply chain to an intelligent, continuous data driven one. Okay, so the marketing message is pretty good. This was actually what actually hmm, it says that this was published by Andrew Thomas, who is actually a geek. And he blocks although like this whole thing looks a little bit more marketing written, like the style but otherwise I really actually like it. You know, usually I'm like, always trying to fight against the the dominant powers, especially like someone like SDL. But I really think like the solution, like if it has everything, especially the Kanban board, Kanban board would be great to manage if you are a project manager, and if it connects with the NMT, if their MMT NMT is good, if the environment or the interface for translators are mostly post editors is also good, if they can really like easily connect to all the different content systems. It looks good, and if the dashboards are like customizable, this ones look kind of basic, but yeah, yeah, it looks good. So the note that I took on my ever growing backlog of tasks is that I wanna do like a video where I just jump in to language cloud and see how it goes. yeah, maybe I should they have actually watched a demo or schedule a meeting with SDL experts. please register for the event here. maybe I should register for that maybe I could do like a react video like where I would react to the demo. I think that would be interesting content. I'm not sure if they would actually uh, allow it anyway, so I don't want to bore you with that. so I'll do that later. And that was the article number four, I hope. Please tell me that it was number four. Yeah, it was number four. So I have two more. Then I have to pee. But I'll survive. So here we go. Let me put in a marker. So here we go. How far are we? Uh, One and a half hour, (laughs) pretty decent. (laughs) I'll probably finish at 4 p.m. and I just go straight for eat, for eating. Anyway, here's number five. So we're almost at the end. So this is a blog article from the favorite Moravia, which is where I started my career. I was really surprised that Moravia doesn't have that many, that much content with the hashtag localization. With the, with the localization hashtag, but when I check their Twitter, I think they actually post a lot more on their Twitter. They're just using the localization hashtag. So anyway, because I would actually expect a lot more content from Moravia, and it looks like they actually do it. Uh, yeah, Moravia had always marketing that I liked. Anyway, here we go six unexpected localization insights from Airbnb. We already talked about Airbnb before, but this is this is really also very 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 interesting. So Airbnb's global expansion has uncovered somewhat eye-opening insights about the global travelers' language expectations and use, which in turn impact Airbnb's localization strategy. The company's trial and error with programs such as MT and machine learning have also led to surprises and adaptations in its localization approach. Six surprises in particular caught our attention. So here we go. Number one. Travelers aren't that different from country to country. People are far more similar globally than you might expect them to be. It doesn't matter if travelers are from China or Cuba or London. They all want the same authentic experiences. Travel expectations and wishes are a globally shared phenomenon. Phenomenon, sorry, as Airbnb has said, they want to meet people, they want to connect and they want to explore the world. They also have similar attitudes about how language is used when traveling. For example, tourists do not expect to have experiences in their own language when they go abroad. Number two, the world is more multilingual than you think. In large parts of the world, many people are bilingual or trilingual. It's easy to underestimate how many people are reasonably fluent in more than one language, particularly across Europe and APAC. How does this manifest at Airbnb? The platform is now accessible in more than 30 languages, and many hosts can write their listings in more than one. This broadens their own sales potential without any help or additional cost. On the other hand, it's also easy to assume that all renters need translations. Some are happy to do business in English, though they still may prefer translated content, not having it doesn't necessarily stop sale. Number three, users don't expect flawless language. Even if a seller lists properties or excursions in a second language, the customer, the customer doesn't expect the content to be perfect. They know their host, They know their host in another country might not speak their language fully or at all. Airbnb's mission is about connecting people and part of that magic is the endearing awkwardness of language barriers. Traveling means taking yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, and struggling with the language, perhaps getting by with just a few words is part of the authentic experience. That language challenge is indeed part of the fun. Number four, MT may or may not be useful. Airbnb has used machine translation to translate some of their content, such as user reviews, but with some unanticipated results the team surmised surmised, I don't know that word, that empty would be great for those who could not read the local language. Obviously, it helps you better understand the content, right? But one of their findings was that the user's experience with empty is not always better than reading a second language with a little difficulty. Even though getting a translation is easy, an empty option is part of the interface. Remember that some renters seem to not need that translation after all. People are using content as is, untranslated, and still succeeding at booking their stay. And here we have in parentheses, despite this, empty and increasingly NMT still has a place in Airbnb's program. Number five, transcreation is difficult but worth it. Airbnb ran a global marketing campaign around the idea that when two people from different cultures connect, there is one less stranger in the world. It's a beautiful idea that's central to Airbnb's values. When people aren't strangers, when they understand each other, there is more tolerance and inclusivity, inclusivity. However, translating the phrase one less stranger into different languages was challenging. In English, this has a poetic positive feel. In German, the word stranger is very close to the word for foreigner. It's not one less foreigner that they wanted to say. So to avoid so to avoid the message getting misconstrued, they transcreated it instead for each local market. This meant that Airbnb was able to preserve the value and intent of their original message worldwide. Number six, last one, machine learning can help with language selection. It's not always feasible or logical to translate all content into all languages. But how does an enterprise decide what to do? What to do? Airbnb has started to use machine learning to predict which languages should be included. In specific listings based on where past customers were from. This is interesting. For, for instance, if a host publishes a listing in Notting Hill in London, and if most travelers booking there are from France, Portugal and Croatia, then the listing should be in French, Portuguese and Croatian. And this can happen at a grand scale. The data can show the listings all over the world that would most benefit from, say, being in French as well as English. In this way, languages chosen will cater to most travelers to that area and save money by not translating into every language. So this is the final point is kind of good reminder to use the data. And again, it kind of like connects to was it the first article or the second one that was talking about like, if you translate into fifteen languages you would reach ninety percent of the of the online marketplace, but maybe you don't need it. So that was the article. And but that was article number five. And here we are getting into article number six, the last one, thank mm-hmm. God. I think this will be probably my longest recording, yeah, but thank god Audacity is recording nicely so far. I got my final order. And here is the final article. So this article is from abacusnews.com. I have no idea what this side does. And it is an interesting insight into Chinese market and the Chinese internet users. It's kind of similar to the one that I was covering from Slater's article which was about India's market. So India and China part of the BRIC markets. So very big markets, very dynamic, changing. So blah blah blah. This article is titled entitled titled or titled whatever. Eight years of huge changes to the world's biggest internet population Visualized, yeah. Sorry, my friends on audio platforms. If you want a visual, you have to go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. (laughs) Think you know the average Chinese netizen? China's internet changes faster than you think. So, they use this term netizen, which is a mix of the word internet and citizen. Chinese netizens have become surprisingly influential on social media. When they speak out on microblogging website Weibo, they get quoted in both domestic and global media. Their ridicule can force force apologies out of luxury brands and make Communist Party officials lose their jobs. In China, the netizens rules. But Chinese netizens are very diverse not just people speaking out on social media. The term technically includes everyone who uses the internet in the country, which means it refers to 854 million people. That's not just the largest internet population in the world. It's more than double the total population of the US. Most of them have only started to come online within the last decade. And as China's internet population swells, as more online services pop up, it shouldn't be a surprise that the habits of all these netizens have changed dramatically. Today, a typical netizen will start their day by scrolling through the news during their morning commute to work. I think I do the same. Just before noon, they'll use a food delivery app and browse Taobao Or doing while munchkin on takeout. I am not sure what these are. I heard of Taobao before. I don't know what it is. Is it like a shopping? Taobao. Yeah. Taobao is a Chinese online shopping website. Okay. And what is doing? Doing. Doing. Oh, it's kind of like TikTok. Yeah, okay. Well munching munching on takeout. In the evening they'll chat away on their messaging app of choice and watch videos of on their favorite video platforms until late into the night. Kinda like my kinda like my day. <laughs> okay. So uh, here's the here's the demographic. Is it called demographic? I don't know. So There are slightly more men online in China than women. They're overwhelmingly young urbanites, but many of them only have a middle school education. Many are also employees and students, but a fifth are self employed. That could mean they are their own bosses working in the grey economy, or as one of China's estimated 400 million strong gig economy. And here's a nice infographic. If you guys uh, want to see it, I will not rephrase this. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> it would take a long time. So yeah, I think I'll, I'm I'm usually linking the sources in my notes so you can find it there. So this is from abacus news. Okay. Uh, Chinese people now spend an average of 28 hours per week online nine hours more than in 2011. And back then the internet was different. More people went online from their desktop computers 74% than on mobile phones 65%. Today 99.1% of netizens use mobile internet. As the number of smartphones rose, so, did the number of netizens. The number of people who shop, watch videos, play games, and pay online expanded up to fourfold within the last eight years. At the beginning of 2011, for example, microblogging site Weibo exploded in popularity, with users increasing more than 200% in just half a year. However, 2011 was also the year that Weibo experienced one of its first major censorship drives when a high speed train crash resulted in an estimated 400 fatalities. Hmm, I don't know what happened. But by 2015, Weibo's popularity was sliding coinciding with the rise of WeChat, which remains China's favorite chat app. WeChat also overshadowed other rising social platforms in China, including Facebook like Renren, which peaked around 2012, only to fall into relative obscurity. It also overshadowed Tencent's other chat platform QQ, which has made a comeback in recent years. Over time, WeChat became the everything app. It even contributed to the rise of mobile payments in China after WeChat introduced its virtual red envelopes for Chinese New Year in 2014. More people started using WeChat pay, helping it become a major rival to Alibaba's Alipay. That same year, payment applications became the fastest growing category of the year, increasing 63.4% in just six months. I think now that I'm here in Philippines, this reminds me kind of like grab when I was here one year ago, you could use a grab to book like a driver and you could still use Uber. When I came here now, there's no Uber anymore. It's just grab Grab has a total monopoly. And now through grab, you can also order food, you can also make payments. So I think it's kind of similar situation. Live streaming. One of the nation's favorite pastimes was also not counted in 2015. Oh, so this is where they were talking about how the research and the statistics were kind of like, not counting certain things. And they're counting them now. So uh, by 2019, more than half of China's netizens were tuning in to watch their favorite live streamers, food delivery apps would soon become another rising trend seeing explosive growth in 2017 when the number of users jumped 41.6%. Netizens started ordering more food online thanks to cheap takeout prices subsidized by competing giants like Meituan, Alibaba's Elemi and Baidu Takeout. Short video apps soon started capturing the attention of China's netizens equally abruptly. They rose rapidly in 2018 and now have a sizable 647 million users. More than 75% of Chinese internet users are now using Kuaishou or China's version of TikTok, Douyin. Yeah, so that's the one. The digital lifestyle of the modern Chinese netizen was made possible by two important factors: rising speeds and falling costs. In the fi- in the past 5 years, Mobile internet speeds have increased sixfold while costs have dropped by more than 90% according to the C and NIC reports. An average netizen today uses 7.2 gigabytes of mobile internet per month, which is about 20% higher than the global average. And that's the end of the article, ladies and gentlemen. My audacity is still working well. My OBS is still recording, and it's three forty-six p.m. here. I think I had my breakfast around noon, so I think it's about the time. But I'm very happy about today's episodes. I didn't provide much commentary on the last two articles. I think they were kind of like like research. I'm not sure what would be the a practical application of that it's more about like knowing a little bit more about the Chinese market which is one of the toughest to tackle I think <laughs> um, but anyway I'll go eat. I'm super hungry and thank you for listening. thank you for watching if you are on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this episode, which is going to be definitely the longest one. And I don't want to prolong the outro, because I could extend it up to two hours. So let's just stick to one hour, 15 minutes. That's where I'm right now. And yeah, this was really fun for me. I really enjoyed this. I have few to do's after this podcast that I want to kind of like apply. Um, So yeah, so please stay tuned. This was episode 12 of the localization podcast, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.